The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. Let's walk the talk. On 92.7 and 106 FM. Welcome to The Money Show on this Wednesday evening, brought to you by APSA CIB, voted overall best service business function in Africa by the Euro Money Cash Management Survey 2023. Uh, Basil Skodos, in a moment, is uh, on the line to us this evening, all about Nasper's results, a couple of things to pick up with him. We'll find out why ICASA is furious at the person or people who are importing Elon Musk's Starlink devices. Remember, Starlink decided it wasn't going to set up shop inside South Africa because of BEE requirements. Uh, somebody, however, is flouting the rules in ICASA. The regulator is very cross about it. Uh, there was a guy who started a business, and I think it was on the railway platform in Belleville. He'd sit there waiting for the train when there were trains, uh, and he would be really fed up when he had could get no information. And because he's an engineer, he created a system for Prasa that used to be, that still is the company, but it doesn't do what it used to do, which is run trains. But uh, he created a system for Prasa so that they could better inform passengers what was going on down the track. That's led to an astonishing business, which is now in the UK, just raised his first run, round of funding, some UK money and lots of South African money. But in real money, it's 200 million rand. Plus, plus a few, you know, plus a few more millions. Um, astonishing story. We'll pick up on that this evening, and then we will play tribute to Charlie Munger this evening, the great Charlie Munger, who's died at the age of ninety-nine. Business partner since nineteen fifty-nine uh, of Warren Buffett, and what a wonderful comedy duo they made. In addition, of course, to being some of the world's most successful investors in generations, did they do anything new? Did they reinvent the w- rules? Did they actually? create a new process or did they just do what they said they did act with patience act calmly never get into an investment in a hurry and sit on the sidelines until it was prudent to invest and then invested and waited and waited and waited charlie mugger dead at 99 our shapeshifter posthumously this evening the money show with bruce whitfield on 702 702 well, it's been a busy couple of months at Naspers and process a big turnaround in financial performance. A new chief executive announced and take a lot bracing for the arrival of Amazon, not quite yet making a profit. Finance Director Basil Skouros on the line to us from India this evening because that's where Naspers has got great big digital businesses. Basil, good evening. Good evening. It, it, India's, India's a, is a hotbed of activity for Naspers, isn't it? It is, Bruce. It actually accounts for 20% of our of the value of our non-pension businesses, so our e-commerce businesses, 10% of consolidated revenues, and it's a country full of opportunity. In the next eight years, Bruce, India will create another India. They will take the GDP from 2.5 trillion to five. So it's a phenomenal market and lots of engineering talent Lots of great businesses that are scaling and growing quickly. Chris Becker spotted it 15 years ago. I recall the conversation with him saying, why are you investing so much in India and not in South Africa? And he said, if you gave me as many mathematicians and scientists as India was giving me, I'd put more money into South Africa. They've created the talent and we haven't. And so that's why the focus is there, I guess. Uh, in, look, it's, it's, a, it's a bigger market with more opportunities. So there's, there's 
but there's also it's also competitive for capital. So lots of people are looking to get in. In South Africa, we've got businesses that are doing well, they're growing well, um, but it is it is a more challenged environment. I mean that that is the truth. Talk to me about uh, ten cent. Of course, this is the the monster that makes up the ma- the majority of the valuation. Of course, given economic uh, China's economic troubles that they've been going through, there was a huge recovery in ten cent. How did that happen? Um, well, first of all, by execution. Um, you know, we've said this many times, and I'll say it again: the ten cent leadership team is probably one of the best internet leadership teams globally. They've, they've done incredibly well navigating the changing macro landscape, regulatory landscape, and have delivered very strong performance in the last quarter. Their revenues are up 11% and their profits are up 36%. They've expanded their margins, their, their profit margins to north of 30%. So it's a phenomenal business and, and continues to grow in its core and innovate in new areas. The split of NASPARS and PROCESS, and this was complicated because NASPARS controls PROCESS and PROCESS controls Tencent. Is it working? It, it is working because, for a couple of reasons. First of all, NASPARS and PROCESS talk to different shareholders. So NASPARS offers the opportunity to South Africans and emerging market investors to participate in in the growth potential of the investments we've made, while process offers something similar to European and developed market investors. Um, as a result of the improving financial performance, the continuation of the open-ended share repurchase, the discount to net asset value continues to drop. So the combined discount is now roughly at about 36%. And that's come down meaningfully from 18 months ago when it was at a high of close to 60%. Uh, and, and so a lot of critics of this of this scheme suggest it hasn't worked. You argue that it has because the discount is almost halved over an 18-month period. Does that suggest it halves every 18 months? I mean, because surely the easy gains have been made. It's always easier in the beginning than later. Uh, one wonders how long it takes to narrow this and whether or not it ever gets to zero, the discount to the value of the underlying asset, which is 10 cents. It's, it's, it's a good question and one that we could, we could talk about for many hours because, look, conglomerates generally have holding company discounts. We, our ambition is not to stop here. We want to keep driving it down. And there's several things within our control, right? And what are those? Those are to continue to be very focused on our existing businesses and make sure that they execute to the best of their ability. And ultimately, what they really need to do is offered a differential value proposition to their competitors. Secondly, we've got a good balance sheet and we need to keep investing. But we're in a different time where there's more volatility and there's also been some missteps in, in recent years. So we've really got to amplify there and, and be disciplined and very focused. And India is a good, good place to do that. And then thirdly, the continuation of the open-ended share repurchase, because while you're growing the numerator, which is the net assets of the group, you're also reducing the denominator, which is the share count, and that will amplify the growth. 
The world of technology, though, moving incredibly, incredibly quickly. You've got a, a business called Stack Overflow. You've taken an impairment of $340 million on that. You bought it in 2021 for $1.8 billion. So that's a fair impairment. It's about a quarter of the value of the business. And you only bought that in 2021. And one of the reasons I ascribe to that, I see, is the rise of artificial intelligence and stack overflow just isn't in the same uh, landscape. And I wonder whether Nusbat is at risk of being left behind in the AI race that is that is very, very prevalent at the moment. Indeed, um, not only AI, but generative AI in particular is a significant opportunity, but also a risk. So one needs to get ahead of that. And that's what we've been doing, maybe specifically to stack over the next start there. So that, that actually wasn't a good call for us in that we bought it at the peak of internet valuation and before the advent of generative AI, right? Now, we've, we've all seen the launch and participated in the use of ChatGBT, and that's happened very quickly. And essentially what businesses need to do is really adapt to that environment. So Stack Overflow have launched um, a product called Overflow AI, which actually looks to now incorporate generative AI capabilities into its product. There's work to do that, and uh, they're hard at it. But then if you look at the rest of our businesses, we've been using AI within our businesses for a considerable period of time, and we've built, we've built quite significant capabilities at the same too. So, for example, in classifieds, right, it's really important for you to know when you're buying something secondhand that it's a valid transaction yeah. and that it's a, it's, it's a product listed by someone you can trust. AI helps us ensure that and increase the trust and we've lost him uh, it was always going to happen unfortunately the line to india unreliable this evening but i think we got enough out of him um and that is basil skordos basil is the chief financial officer at naspars explaining the complexity of this business of course acknowledging that not every deal they've done has been good in fact one of the great criticisms of naspars of course is that it's done nothing really substantial since the 10 cent deal. It's done lots of different things, but nothing nearly as accretive, and nobody else in the world, I think, has done nearly anything nearly as accretive as 10 cent has been. Uh, we'll, we'll get uh, perspective on that. We really will. They've also got a new acting chief executive, a guy called Irvin Too. Um, he is there, and uh, yeah, Take A Lot is still it's doing better than it was six months ago when it lost a whackload of money, about 350 million rand, but it's doing better now. Still not profitable and Jeff Bezos, of course, is making landfall with Amazon next year. So, yeah, the challenges are coming thick and fast, but I really enjoyed Basil Skordos' take on India and the opportunity set in that country. Leadership, decision-making, growth, ultimately, is a choice. India's been turned around. We could learn from them. Thank you, Basil Skordos at Nasbar. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield is brought to you by APSA CIB, unrivaled pursuit of great service that guides good business for clients. APSA is a registered FSP. You're with Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702. ICASA, which regulates all communications, is in a bit of a froth because someone has been importing Starlink satellite internet terminals 
and Ikasa and saying it's illegal and it's got to stop. Trouble is, they don't know who it is, where they're coming from and how they're getting into the country. And also, I suppose, with all the backlogs in shipping, how they're getting into the country. Duncan McLeod is founder and editor at Tech Central on the line to us from Joburg. It casts those cross because they've not approved the entry of Starlink into South Africa because Starlink refused to abide with BEE rules, of course. I think that was the story, wasn't it, Duncan? Well, we're not 100% sure because no one's actually saying anything on the record here and, and Starlink and Musk haven't said anything about this. But um, that is the, the conjecture that um, although Elon Musk hasn't said anything officially, uh, he may be making some point about BEE and BEE requirements around licensing in South Africa. He has um, tweeted about this country uh, on one or two occasions in the last little while. He, uh, he tweeted a few months ago lashing the EFF um, so he, he does seem to pay some attention to the country of his birth, although he's, he's clearly got his fingers in all of other pies as well. Um, so, yeah, these uh, Starlink terminals are, have been coming into the country and people have started using them, even though it's not officially supported in here. And ICASA has said that it is illegal to use these services in the country and to sell these terminals without ICASA approval. And I do have some sympathy for ICASA here because... Um, it does have to manage the radio frequency spectrum in the national interest, and that includes in, um, ensuring that there is no interference, for example, between service providers. And that's the reason we ha- have a spectrum licensing regime. Um, and if people were to just come in and start to launch services and use radio frequency spectrum without those licenses, it would be chaos and could cause interference and other problems. So ICASA uh, has a point. This, this stuff is regulated for a reason. Um, and, uh, and and companies need to go through the regu- through the licensing process. Uh, whether the rules around the licensing, um, like the specific requirement that 30% of equity has to be in the hands of historically disadvantaged individuals, whether that is fair or not is, I guess, open to debate and depends on your perspective. Um, but we, we haven't heard anything official from Musk or SpaceX about why they're not launching here. What we do know is that if you go to starlink.com slash map and have a look at the global map of all the countries where they have launched or are planning to launch, uh, it shows that um, in southern Africa, our neighboring countries have either already launched Starlink services, they've got the necessary licensing from the regulators in those countries, or plan to do so soon. In fact, South Africa is the only country on the map that is marked no launch yeah. dates at this stage. So... Uh, it's clear that South Africa is very much behind, even in the African context, in getting Starlink internet uh, satellite service. Some of these things are getting into the country. Do we have any idea what the what the route is, who's bringing them in, how they're getting in, and how they, they, they're managing to get through customs? Because surely beady-eyed customs officials would notice if <laughs> boxes of Starlink terminals were coming through either air or sea ports. You know, as long as, long as the SAR gets its customs duties at the, at the border post, they probably don't, don't, don't check with the CASA whether this has actually been type approved by the regulator for use in South Africa. Um, there, there was an ISP, I think, in Uppington that was importing them. I don't know if they still are. There may have been one or two other ISPs doing it. It's been estimated that there are quite a lot of Starlink users in the country already. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a great service if you're particularly in a rural area or you're a farmer or um, somewhere where there isn't a well-developed telecommunications infrastructure. It allows you to get online at high speed for the first time. Um, so it can be transformative, particularly in, 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 in rural areas. But, um, yeah, they're coming in and people are starting to use them. Um, and uh, where this ends up, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. But um, I think there needs to be a political solu- solution potentially of some kind. Um, 
because ICASA um, kind of just has to follow the rules. That's what they are. They're a regulator. They they have a set of rules that are that that, that are imposed on them by through through legislation. Um, they're a creature of statute, and they they have to they have to. Uh, enforce those rules. They're, they're required to do that. Even if they don't like those rules, they're required to enforce them. Yeah. Um, but I think where ICASA can be criticised is that uh, they're not issuing any new licences at all at the moment. Um, if, if you want to actually get a licence, you have to go and buy one uh, from an existing licensee. And those, the, there are a limited number of those. And that makes no sense whatsoever. ICASA should be strongly criticised for, for not moving on that. We need more licences. The market is fully liberalised. So why is there a moratorium on issuing of new licenses, an artificial restriction, and in my view, should be scrapped. Thank you very much to Duncan McLeod. Duncan, of course, is the founder and editor at Tech Central. The Money Show. The Markets. To Chris Stewart we go, and it was Nuss Batson processed, and fortunately... Uh, we got cut off with Basil Skordos a little earlier, uh, but the Nasbats results looked a little bit healthier than they were last time around. Yeah, good evening, Bruce. Uh, obviously, the Nasbats and process results always dominated by what's happened at ten cent, and we've seen the ten cent results. So the market market always then ends up you know, focusing on the balance of the e-commerce. Uh, portfolio, largely unlisted e-commerce portfolio that sits within process. And, uh, you know, the newfound capital discipline that has come uh, to the group in recent times uh, has meant that there's been a, a, a distinct focus on cash burn within those businesses. There's been a distinct focus uh, on cost management within those businesses and a distinct focus on making good on their commitment uh, to turn their e-commerce portfolio around to profitability uh, by the first half of their um, 2025 financial year. Um, and that would be, therefore, the period starting 1 April next year through 30 September next year. And indeed, it does look as though they're ahead of uh, schedule on that uh, and now indicating uh, that they would hope to see the e-commerce portfolio turn to profitability in the second half of their current financial year. In other words, that would be uh, over the next six months ending 31 March next year. Sure. Okay. Lots of detail in there, of course. And yeah, uh, we, we went through some, the most important detail with Basil Skordos. Um, Pepcor results. Pepcor's not been firing on all cylinders. They've had management changes in recent years. Are things looking up there? Yeah, I mean, uh, a little bit better. It's, it's uh, you know, it's, it's a tough environment to be in retail in South Africa. There's uh, no doubt about that. And, uh, you know, I think it's particularly a tough environment to be in retail when your retail offering uh, is servicing uh, the lower LSM groups in the market, because I think that's where a lot of the uh, financial distress as a result of increased transport prices, increased food prices, uh, and indeed high interest rates have been felt. Um, that said, you know, we had seen uh, the pre-announcement um, of their sales growth. We'd seen the pre-announcement of their earnings range. Uh, so, you know, a, a lot had already been disclosed within the numbers, but generally speaking, uh, a little bit better in the second half than the first half. Acceleration in like-for-like sales growth, particularly within the PEP uh, and Ackermann's brands. Uh, some good contributions being made uh, by their fintech businesses, uh, their um, uh, mobile sales, cellular sales businesses as well. Um, the numbers are a little bit uh, noisy, uh, lots and lots of uh, adjustments that one needs to make to get to uh, a like-for-like uh, view of earnings, if you like. Um, there was a fairly large uh, reversal of a tax provision. Uh, which had quite a big uh, impact on the bottom line. 
there was an extra trading week over this period. They've made some lease modification gains. There was a settlement recovery out of Steinoff as well. So isolating for all of that, you know, it does, does look as though comparable earnings was down in the double-digit percentages sure. on the back uh, of, you know, continued struggling at the top line. Um, and, and I guess one other point worth mentioning, it does look as though the Brazilian acquisition that they made, the business called Avenida, uh, that they acquired uh, uh, you know, in this, well, uh, that featured in the first time in this period uh, has been quite positive and is adding quite nicely to the bottom line as well. None of them, however, are 10 cent. That's the problem. Everyone wants more, another 10 cent out of Nuspats and that's the one-hit wonder of one-hit wonders. Richemont and Farfetch. Now, Farfetch is such a lovely name for a business, but this is a digital strategy. They've been talking for a long time. They still seem to be talking with no clear end in sight to their talking. Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, what's precipitated all of this? I mean, uh, you know, the, the the transaction that had been discussed was that Richemont was going to take its e-commerce platform offering called Ux Net-a-Porte, which, you know, given the fact that it's a lower margin business, has been somewhat polluting uh, the Richemont uh, financials with its uh, particular contributions and Richmond have been looking to dispose of that business by collapsing it into uh, Farfetch, creating a much bigger platform uh, with much bigger scale, uh, which Richmond would then uh, no longer be required uh, to consolidate, but could then associate account by taking uh, a less than 50% stake in the combined entity. Now, overnight, we see that uh, Farfetch have elected not to release their third quarter results. Um, And in fact, uh, there is speculation perhaps uh, that the company is going to be taken private uh, by its owner, who, although I believe he owns less than 20% of the equity, owns something like 77% of the voting rights. And, uh, you know, given that that is potentially rumoured to be being taken private, does that put in jeopardy the potential uh, transaction uh, that Richmond and indeed Ux Net-a-Porte are considering uh, with Farfetch? Your guess is as good as mine, Bruce. I don't have any additional knowledge on top of that, uh, but the market's starting to speculate that maybe that transaction is not going to be on. And again, the world on tenterhooks waiting for Jerome Powell or somebody to talk about American inflation and interest rates. We've got U.S. GDP growth in the third quarter revised higher. It was at nearly 5%. It's now above 5%. So it's much higher, much stronger, much better. This is an economy that's just not going to lie down. I wonder if that's a risk to us at all. Yeah, I mean, in the good old days, that would have been reason for cheer, wouldn't it? A, a, A GDP beat, better growth globally. Uh, we would typically say that's good. That's good for uh, uh, risk assets. That's good for emerging markets. Uh, and indeed, it may well be the case. However, you know, if it is uh, not good uh, for the so-called uh, interest rate pivot that everyone's got very, very excited about, in other words, the fact that the Fed uh, have finished uh, increasing interest rates, that the U.S. economy theoretically uh, is slowing, that inflation is slowing quite nicely, and that we're going to start seeing rate cuts uh, in the first half of 2024. If that story gets turned on its head, uh, and if we are not necessarily at the top of the rate cycle, then I think that will be quite bad uh, for risk assets. It'll be quite bad uh, for emerging markets. It'll be quite bad for the South African rand and indeed uh, our equity market as well, Bruce. Chris Stewart at 91. 702. Bruce is on the money show.
We'll get hold of Evan Walker in just a moment. Evan is a portfolio manager at uh, 361 Asset Management. And uh, we'll talk about Black Friday, why it was such a mess. Well, certainly one hopes that it is the beginning of the end of Black Friday. Did I say that out loud? It just seems unnecessary somehow, this American implant on our retail sector. Uh, On your next Money Show, Warren Ingram, co-founder Galileo Capital, is a personal financial advisor explaining why when there are rules in personal finance, not all rules are cast in stone. Looks like he's got a working government. Uh, And why golden rules can sometimes be ignored a little and why. Oh, it's a good one. Plus Pablo Fatidis at Auric Business Accelerator and then a deep dive into the results of SPA to try and figure out what's going wrong at the retailer. Bruce Whitfield on The Money Show. 6 to 8 p.m. Well, a big disappointment on 2023 Black Friday sales. There really just wasn't the hiss and the energy and the vigor that we used to see in Black Friday. Was that the reason, I wonder, why there was a flop or is it just the underlying economy that is quite miserable at the moment that is causing the misery evan walker at 361 asset management explain black friday and the flop that it appears to have been hi good evening bruce and welcome everyone yeah it seems to be a bit um it's uh, no longer the, the sort of aspirational purchase that it was a couple of years ago um i think to a large extent we know the macro issues we're obviously at the peak of the interest rate cycle they're still and obviously food inflation running high, et cetera, et cetera. So all the macro issues are with us and probably with us for a, a little longer still. But I think in essence, the retailers have also shot themselves in the foot. A lot of them start the Black Friday discounting two weeks in advance. They carry on for two weeks it become, afterwards. It becomes Black Friday month and Black Friday yeah, quarter and Black Friday year almost, doesn't it? Yeah, it's sort of lost its allure of that one big special day when you knew you could get something good at a good price. It drove a lot of volume for the retailers. Um, it's lost that allure. To me, it certainly has. And um, and I think a lot of it has to do with, obviously, the fact that everyone it is a tough economy, as we know, and everyone's been trying to get the edge in. But that edge has just extended way beyond the jurisdiction of where Black Friday started and should end. And I think we've also wised up to a deal is a deal until it's not a deal anymore. And there weren't that many deals about anymore. Certainly, people were, become, were becoming very cynical about the approach that some retailers took in terms of fudging pricing and, and you know, really not offering deals at all, but dressing it up like it was a time to have a deal. 100%, Bruce. And I think also this year, double whammy. I mean, you know, we're going to see very constrained imports coming through our ports this year. Uh, so I think the retailers are sitting with this predicament now that they're not going to have stock, enough stock for the Christmas season. Should, so why should they go ahead and discount anyway? As we know, you know, stock is running now in certain categories uh, a month late coming through the ports, given the shambles those are in. And, uh, and you know, they've still got to make money. So I think to a large extent, it's also compounded by this ports issue um, and retailers not offering the extent of the discounts we saw in the past. I saw some encouraging news today that it seems like the port of Cape Town has cleared its backlog, but I think it's the first and only one. I didn't see that. Uh, maybe we should open the champagne. Um, <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> you know no, you'd have to have cup to seek. The champagne's not getting through the ports, not just yet. It's still exactly, got to be unpacked. Exactly. <laughs> no, um, you know, I've been, I, I st- uh, I'm, still, I'm still glancing at a couple of ships from our balcony. So um, certainly, I, I, you know, we'll have to follow up on that. But all all the calls we've had with a lot of the freight companies, et cetera, in the last couple of weeks have indicated that the mess is still there. 
Um, obviously, that mess is exacerbated into this period because there's so much offloading. So the nature of it being that, you know, obviously it gets less. But we've also heard a lot of ships have, um, have, have not come through the Cape Town port and Durban ports. A lot have gone through Valfus uh, Bay as well and dropped cargoes in Valfus. And, and a lot of cargo ships have offloaded in the Mauritius. Uh, for for them on shipping to back to South Africa uh, and into Durban, given the congestion, and that obviously comes with an additional, quite a big, a big additional surcharge, as we know. Yeah, I mean, are we are you looking at the potential of shortages this Christmas, or are the retailers sufficiently stocked to carry themselves through? I think there's certainly certain categories where they run just in time processes. We're going to see a little bit of shortages, but most of the apparel retailers would have had all their stock here by sort of late October for the summer season. Um, I think on the plant side, you might see some shortages coming in because that's just a little bit more just in time. Um, but I think there's going to be a couple of categories we spoke to. Funny enough, we spoke to Oceana today um, and even on the, the, the canned fish side, they're running, okay, they've got a lot of inventory, but uh, stocks are taking three months to clear uh, given the backlogs, which seems, you know, it seems a hell of a long time to me. We haven't quite got to the bottom of that, but our analysts saw them today, and that was a big number. So there are categories, I think, in jeopardy of running out. I don't think, I don't think in, the, in the near term, the next two, three weeks, but certainly you know, come January, if these, um, these stresses persist at the ports, we could have some problems. I mean, is Black Friday a thing of the past to, to your mind, or is this simply just a really rough year and everybody needs to get themselves back to themselves, get interest rates cut, uh, get the ports flowing, get a little bit of uh, a bit of fluidity going in the economy once again, and it rebounds next year, or are we over it? No, I think we can just see a rebounding again. I don't think we're over it. I think it's something that it is entrenched. I think that, um, as I said, that the retailers have spread themselves a little bit thin on all sort of matters this year. Um, I think we could see a little bit of a comeback. It, it's all it's all very much related to the macro uh, and just what the retailers can do at that macro level, given obviously the impetus you know in, in the economy at that point and just how they how they're sensing the season. I think this was an exceptionally bad year, given obviously load shedding ports. You know they've had everything thrown at them, uh, and why why and why throw away a margin when you haven't got the stock? Thank you to Evan Walker, who's a portfolio manager at 361 Asset Management. In a moment, a guy whose business was conceived on a railway station platform in the days when there were trains. They were there. They were just late all the time. That frustrated the living daylights out of him. So he created a solution to at least knowing when the next train was coming. That little business, started on a train platform in Cape Town, has just raised 200 million rand in the UK. How? In a moment. The Money Show. With Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702. The Money Show brought to you by ABSA CIB, voted overall best service business function in Africa by the Euro Money Cash Management Survey 20. 23. Uh, to Justin Kutsia, we will go in just a moment. Justin is the founder of a business called Go Metro. Need to talk to Justin this evening all about um, the why nerds rule the world. It's a very important thing, you know, nerds ruling the world. <laughs> if you missed it earlier, it was a tough day on our stock market. Goldfields and Anglo Gold amongst the few gainers on the day, and they only went up 
because we saw the gold price go through $2,040 an ounce. Otherwise, it was a tough day across the financial sector, a tough day across the industrials, and uh, the broader resources sector also lost a little bit of ground. Well, there is a reason why nerds rule the world. They don't accept problems as problems. They look for solutions, and sometimes those solutions take them down a completely different path to where they started. Civil engineer Justin Kutsia, he started a business called Go Met out of sheer frustration. I think it was at Belleville train station. And he started helping Prasa. That was the company that used to run trains and occasionally still does uh, to improve the scheduling and getting information to customers because he was just bored and frustrated by the fact that trains were seemingly never going to turn up in his platform. Justin Kutsia on the line to us this evening. And Justin, I mean, oh, am I right? Was it, it was Belleville train station and that's kind of the chronology, right? That's correct, Bruce. Yes, it was Belleville train station, platform two to be exact, waiting for the Monte Vista line to Century City. Um, uh, and, and just hearing. It's etched, it's etched in your memory in pain and anguish, but you sat there going to your day job, waiting, going, hold on a second, this should be working better. And it's not working better, so let me make it work better. Yeah, yeah correct. You could book uh, your movie on Mixit. Remember Mixit? Um, you could find out everything you want on chat, uh, on, on chat, WhatsApp, but you couldn't know when the train was coming. And so um, we built GoMetro uh, as a train timetable app that then integrated it into the control systems so we could tell when the trains were and when they were or not coming. And that allowed us to help customers, um, well, let their bosses know why they were late. So we launched the email my boss button where you could uh, email your boss a late note um, with a train time attached to it. And uh, I learned that information is power and uh, transport is a network like energy, like communications. And knowing what is going on is critical for network to function, um, as we're seeing with the the logistics crisis right now. And of course, Prasa was your first customer um, and you did some work for them. But I suppose ultimately you ran out of rail, literally, um, with Prasa and you've moved off to the UK with your business, Go Metro, and you've set up a new entity there, which is raising money. Now, what is the, 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 this version of Go Metro doing? Yeah, so trains led to buses. So we did a lot of bus digitization and um, bus data management in South Africa, because we do have a vibrant bus sector. Uh, buses led to minibuses, and we uh, built the first uh, minibus map for Belleville, um, which we launched in 2015, and we were um, working with the minibus taxi sector on reforms uh, to their operations from 2015 onwards. And then um, all of that led to us working with bus operators in uh, the UK, London uh, specifically, um, the, Europe, um, even um, did a few projects in Hong Kong um, and uh, Austin. So, so started really exploring uh, what we have to offer the rest of the world, which is skill, technique, expertise. Yeah, we really do have a lot to offer in terms of solutions and, and solutioning as South Africans. It's astonishing, isn't it? I mean, is the business now headquartered and located in the UK because you've raised money from a company called Zenobi Energy and then a whole bunch of names I do recognize. Uh, a lot of them seem to be South African, uh, South Africans sourced to income. Yes, yeah, so we are headquartered in the UK now. Um, we raised uh, £9 million that we've just announced today. 
Um, no, no, call it, say 210 million rand. It sounds much more impressive than 9 million pounds. It's a lot of money. But 210 million rand, that's like proper money. Yes, yes. No, we, we, we really have received a vote of confidence from um, our new investors, our Zenobi Energy and Future Growth Asset Managers, who you'll be aware, well aware of. Um, yep. out of Cape Town. And um, follow, following on were Four Decades Capital, which is uh, the private fund of, of Mike Faff and Derek Prince, to R&B legend. Um, Schleiser Capital, um, that's uh, the f- fund um, 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 f- chaired by Rob Causa. Um, Tritec Global, which is William Kirsch and his family. Uh, Kalon Venture Partners, who um, sure. uh, it was a 12-day fund. Uh, E-Square Ventures, which is um, Alan Gray Foundation, and uh, Greg Curie um, in his personal capacity as an angel. So, you know, our success has really been built on the confidence and belief of early-stage investors, angel investors, seed investors, and the the ecosystem that South Africa has, we can be proud of, that we are able to give businesses time they need to figure out what they can offer the world, and then um, the backing and the support to go and find the partners we need to take on the world. And we feel very confident that we have an incredible partner now with uh, Zenobi Energy and Future Growth helping us with the next stage of our journey. But it's essentially logistics. It's helping stuff get around the world more quickly, more easily, more efficiently, and in a traceable fashion. I mean, I don't mean to dumb it down too much, but I think that's what it is. Yeah, so there's there's a big wave we might not be seeing yet in South Africa, which is the electrification of heavy-duty freight and uh, buses. So these are 26-ton, 44-ton, you know, big double-deckers, they're arriving on the market really, really quickly. And there's a real benefit to moving to electric when 40% of your uh, running cost is diesel. And so um, manufacturers are producing buses at a rate of knots. And the technology is really proliferating very, very quickly um, in places that have regular supply of power. Um, and so there's a real need to take all of these data streams because you've got the vehicle now, you have the chargers, you've got some batteries, you've got the grid connection, you have all of this information flowing around. And um, so you need to integrate that somewhere. So we've developed a technology called Bridge. Bridge is a aggregator, telemetry aggregator. So we can take telemetry from the vehicle itself, from the charger, the battery, uh, the grid and how it's performing and put all of that together into a picture so that fleet managers don't run out of diesel, Bruce, but uh, don't run out of um, <laughs> power and electricity or juice. Yeah. No, and so our right. platform is, yeah. 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 So our platform is adopted by Zenobi. Yeah. It's astonishing, and, uh, Justin. They, I mean, this is, a, this is a business, though, created to solve a domestic problem that was in its infancy. And, I mean, the, the, the wheels truly have come off South Africa's rail system, so it would never have continued to work here. But you must have learned a lot, I think, dealing with the bureaucracy of Prasa and just learning, I suppose, the ropes of, of this particular enterprise to a point now where people are prepared to put some real money into the business. Uh, absolutely. Look, we, we have incredible talent um, in South Africa and um, incredible skills, and uh, we have incredible problems. So we, we have confidence in our ability to solve, and uh, we, we definitely are um, solving problems now in depots around the world. Um, I want to tell you a little bit about Zenobi. Um, sure. They um, have a thousand electric buses on the road today. Um, they are operational um, across uh, the UK. Uh, Australia, New Zealand, and they've got some operations in the EU as well. And they finance electric vehicles. So they take the complexity out of 
buying an electric bus or truck if you're a fleet operator and offering it as a subscription. So they've piloted electric transport as a service. So you can pay a monthly fee for your electric bus if you're a bus company or your truck if you're a truck company. And it comes with charges, with power supply, uh, with power purchase agreements, everything wrapped up, um, taking the risk out of fleet. So it really is a transformative, innovative uh, idea. And we're very excited to be able to bring our technology and uh, have innovation, meet innovation, and um, hopefully um, bring that to uh, another 5,000 vehicles in the next uh, four or five years. Amazing. Justin Kutsia, well done. Thank you. He's the founder of Go Metro, from a station platform in Belleville to raising capital in the UK to help logistics with electric buses. And a company called Zenobi Energy and a whole bunch of South Africans are also throwing money at his business. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. Let's walk the talk. On 92.7 and 106 FM. The Money Show brought to you by ABSA CIB, voted overall best service business function in Africa by the Euro Money Cash Management Survey 2023. Uh, at half past seven this evening, tributes to Charlie Munger, pouring in from all over the place. 99-year-old Charlie Munger, business partner to the better-known Warren Buffett since 1959, together building one of the most astonishing investment firms in the world. And espousing an investment philosophy with a sense of homespun wisdom and humor like very few others have exhibited in that particular sector. What a legend. We'll bring you some of that homespun wisdom and humor. Some of it a little rude, uh, but I think valuable for you to get some context this evening as we pay tribute to Charlie Munger on our first ever posthumous shapeshifter. Usually we only have people who are alive that we pay tribute to, but we thought this would be special because Charlie Munger was, well, Charlie Munger. The Money Show. Business Unusual. But first, Business Unusual brought to you by Bidvest Bank. Bidvest Bank, built for your business. And Niven Posma, who is the author, the advisor, the lecturer and keynote speaker. What on earth is this thing called the authenticity paradox, Niven? Yeah, hi, Bruce. Lovely to chat to you again. It's actually an interesting framework that comes from Aminia Ibarra, and she talks about something that I throw out often to people, this idea that authenticity is such a, a gold standard for all of us. I mean, often when I sit with groups and I say, how many people think authenticity is important? You know, half the hands in the room go up. And actually the point is that when we hold on to authenticity, when we think that that's the absolute standard of what we should be measuring ourselves against, we can miss out on some really important learning and really important opportunities. Because, you know, how many times do we t- do we stay stuck thinking, okay, well, this is what I need to do, but it doesn't feel authentic. I need to step up into the space, but it doesn't feel like me. And, you know, frankly, when you're learning, when you're developing, which actually is what should be the gold standard, it's not going to feel like you because it's not you yet. You know, and so this this holding on to authenticity is if, as, well, if something doesn't feel authentic, I'm not supposed to do it. No, sometimes the fact that you feel like an imposter means that you're learning, means that you're growing. And, and that's what some, that's something you should really pay attention to. Well, sometimes you're just an imposter, but yeah, that yeah, that that, that, <laughs> that reveals itself over time. This, this idea, this this focus on authenticity, I'm going to be my most authentic self. Um, it kept on accent. It yeah, it becomes it becomes an obsession, doesn't it? 
Yeah, I think it does. And, you know, especially in the work that I do around politics, a lot of what I say to people is, listen, particularly when it comes to a leadership position, actually what what you're being called to do, frankly, what you're being paid to do is being authentic to what the situation requires. And, and frankly, that means sometimes you've got to, excuse me, sometimes you've got to transcend your own stuff. I mean, I can think of times when I was heading up teams, heading up organizations. I did not necessarily feel hope. I did not necessarily feel alive and brimming with confidence. But frankly, my role as CEO meant that I had to project it. And so I did. That was what the situation required of me. And then, you know, it's not always um, about projecting something you don't feel. Sometimes it's about sharing what you really do feel. I mean, I can think of twice in my career where I actually just uh, broke down in tears in front of a team, just said, look, this is this is hideous. And what the situation required was that we connected as human beings around something that was overwhelming. And so this idea of, well, when I was projecting confidence that I didn't feel, was I being inauthentic? Well, maybe if you want to get down into the, the details of it, perhaps. But was I being authentic to what the situation required? Absolutely. Is there, therefore, the myth of authenticity? Because we look at some people and they seem perfectly authentic. They seem very well sculpted oh, yeah. and, and, and they just seem to have it all. But you also wonder just, you know, if you scratched just slightly beneath the surface, if things would go quite badly awry fairly quickly. Oh, yeah. I mean, isn't that the challenge we all face with social media? You know, I mean, the absolute perfection of people who then a week later are having nervous breakdowns or God forbid committing suicide or all kinds of stuff comes out of the woodwork or stuff, all kinds of stuff comes out of an incredibly painful side to this person that certainly wasn't curated and airbrushed to perfection for public consumption. Yeah. I mean, I think that's absolutely real. And and so as with most things that are complex, most things that are challenging, it, it is a both end. You do have to project a certain image. Um, you do have to acknowledge and recognize that leadership is a performative action as much as it's a, an authentic one. And damn it, can can we stop with this this obsession with the perfection and the airbrushing? <laughs> the thing is, the authenticity requires vulnerability. And depending on how confident you are as a leader, uh, whether that be at a team level, at a group level, at, a, at a, 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 whatever level it might be, that sense of authenticity can make some people feel vulnerable and that vulnerability equals weakness and weakness equals failure and you cannot be seen to be weak in front of the troops. They need you to be, um, you know, Thor or Wonder Woman or whatever, you know, superhero yeah, yeah. Um, they fantasize about. Yeah, sure. I mean, isn't that why Brené Brown um, has become this global thought leader because of this work around authenticity and vulnerability mm -hmm. and shame and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, look, again, you know, I think it's a balancing act. I mean, I was speaking to somebody just this week, actually, who said this idea of we need to wait for a safe space to be created before we step in and are vulnerable. Actually, sometimes it takes courage to create that safe space for yourself and for everyone else. And I always, I, I love pushing back with people when they say, oh, yeah, you know, courage, courage, courage. Well, frankly, unless you feel fear, you don't need courage. I mean, sure, you can have all kinds of other qualities which are fabulous and, and laudable. But courage only comes when you feel fear.
and you step in anyway. And so that choice to step in anyway, and by doing that, potentially create a safe space for other people to step in as well and to see what might be possible in this mess that we're all in or this overwhelm that we're all in. Just I take my hats off to people, uh, my hats off to people when they do that. Nelson Mandela said something about courage isn't the absence of fear. It's doing what needs to be done anyway. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That's that's courage. You're nipping yourself and you still go out and you still go do and and do what you need to do. Um, You're quite critical of this idea of authenticity because you say it's a way of sticking to what's comfortable and familiar. You don't have to evolve. You don't you yeah, you're not, just being your self-obsessed authentic self. Yeah, look, I don't think it's necessarily always about sticking to what's familiar, but hell, it can be a really useful excuse to stick to what's familiar. No, no, <laughs> this is not who I really am. Well, again, you know, if you look at all kinds of work that's been done, we are all works in progress who mistakenly think that we are finished. So who are you? Are you being authentic to the person that you were a year ago, the person that you were 10 years ago? No, I mean, that's ridiculous. So are you being authentic to the person you are now, the person you want to be, the person you aspire to be, the person you're pushing yourself to be? I mean, I think if we recognize and acknowledge and accept and celebrate, frankly, the fact that we are all on this endless process of reinvention and invention. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the rate of change might slow down as we get older. But I mean, look at Dan Gilbert's talk on TED about uh, the psychology of the future self. That's his line. And I appropriate it happily and gladly. We are all works in progress. You mistakenly think we're finished. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Ivan Postma, author, advisor, lecturer, keynote speaker, and authentic so thank you very much for sharing with us this evening in a moment consumer ninja wendy nola now this is a scary one because wendy nola has uncovered a bit of what could be a scam now markham uh, is uh, temba is very grumpy with markham uh, it's part of tfg group now temba says that markham is charging account holders to contact them to remind them to pay at least their minimum payment. So it's not that they've missed their minimum payment. It's that the company is contacting you to say, please don't forget to pay your minimum payment. And they're charging you for that little call. Hold on a second. That can't be right. Surely that's not possible. Hmm. Let's talk to Wendler about that coming up in a moment. It's time to shake off the energy blues and to get an added boost with affordable, renewable electricity from Red Rocket. The independent power producers on a mission to launch 2,000 megawatt renewable energy to be available from 2026 for businesses to buy. Whether you have a small or larger business need, get in touch and find out how much you can get of your share of clean energy from wind and solar power sources. Email power at redrocket.energy. T's and C supply. The Money Show. With Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702. Wendy Nola coming up in just a minute. Uh, the memories that have come through today, thick and fast, from countless people who over many years have been back and forth to Omaha in Nebraska. Omaha, Nebraska is a bit like Bloemfontein, bigger and flatter. And it is an astonishing place.
It really is. Not particularly posh, not particularly showy or And that's where certainly uh, Warren Buffett has based himself for most of his adult life. And it's where the business of uh, of the of, of Berkshire Hathaway, a former textile mill, has been run from. I've been outside the offices. I had a picture outside the offices. Do you think I could find it? today. No, I couldn't. But yes, Berkshire Hathaway, uh, an astonishing success story. Uh, starts out as a textile that is bought by Warren Buffett and he and Charlie Munger over a period of 60 years converted into one of the world's most successful investment businesses in history. And they don't do anything brand new. They don't create anything brand new. They learn from the lessons of a guy called Benjamin Graham who was writing in the 1920s before the Great Depression. And Benjamin Graham was talking about this concept of value investing. Funding companies that are unloved, that are uh, not fully priced, they're, they're trading at a big discount, nobody else is paying attention to them. And if you do your sums right, you go in and you buy them. And I think that we're going to talk to you know, two investors this evening, uh, both of whom I am sure have been multiple times to the massive shindig. I was privilege to attend in 2017, which happens at the big Omaha Convention Center. There was one big massive hall. I think it's a basketball court when it's not a hall, but 18,000 people cram in there. And you've got to like push an elbow your way in. I mean, the veterans, I remember chatting to this woman outside. She seemed so nice. And the next thing, the doors opened and she was out there, boy. She had bony elbows and off she went. Bang, 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 pushing through crowds because she wanted to get as close as possible to the front. Uh, and it's like going to any kind of rock concert. You don't got to watch the stage anyway. You watch the big screen. So, you know, you sit anywhere within the venue. You're soaking up the atmosphere and the gears, and it's great. And you watch these two old toppies jabbering away, making jokes, funny as the day is long, gifted as the year is spectacular, and making big investment decisions with big amounts of money and doing it with an alarming rate of huge success, not always getting it right, missing some of the biggest trends in the world sometimes, but more often than not, getting it right. The Money Show. Consumer Ninja. And that is Wendy Nola. Uh, and this is a horrific story, this idea that you've got a clothing account and the company phones you a couple of days before your payment is due and says, don't forget to pay. And then they add insult to injury. They charge you for making that call. Is that even possible? Legal? Is it being done in the way that Temba suggests, Wendy Nola? It is? Hello, Bruce. Yes, it is, and it is legal. So, look, I was a bit, I don't, I, many, many years ago, about 10 years ago, I closed all my clothing accounts I, I, in the days when I used to get a bonus. And um, it was quite an interesting financial and um, psychological exercise for me. But, uh, yeah, this hasn't happened to me personally, but Timber wrote to me because he has a men's clothing, an account rather, with men's clothing retailer Markham. And he took issue with the fact that um, he, well, that, that, that Markham, which is part of the TFG group, charges its account holders to contact them to remind them to pay at least their minimum payments due, right? You, if you don't meet that payment, if, you, if you're late or you short pay, then you you get hold, they get hold of you and you have to pay. Just a correction, they, they they apparently phone you just before your due date and and remind you it's coming up and you don't pay for that one. But if you don't pay, then you ah, get okay. um, contacted. So Timber says it's twenty rand for a call, 
20 rand for a collection re- uh, letter, 2 rand 80 for an SMS to remind you to pay your overdue account. He says they do this as soon as the account settlement date is passed. While one understands the need for companies to follow up on their debtors, it cannot be acceptable or treating customers fairly uh, for them to um, introduce it without consent. Well, I think he might find it in the terms and conditions. Okay, no, but um, here's, here's the thing, Wendy. I mean, I, I was kind of appalled because my impression was different to to the facts as these things often are. If you owe money yes. to somebody and you know that there is a due date and a certain amount of money is due at a due date, you yes. surely have no recourse if you don't pay and then the company is perfectly within its rights yes. to call you and demand money and that comes at a cost. Exactly. So I think the thing is that not all retailers do this. And this is obviously Timber's first experience of it. And his point was that they, they're doing it uh, uh, multi-platform. So he's saying uh, SMS, uh, email, call. So in his case, it was 42 rand 80 altogether. Um, and he says this could escalate and he doesn't see any justification for that amount. And he says, you know... Uh, and this is one of the points I want to make. He wrote to TFG upon realizing that this was going on. He said it was over a month ago, and they've simply um, not responded to him, which is why he wrote to me. So that's the first thing is that companies, if you just handled your internal, your, your correspondence internally, um, as customers expected, wouldn't these things wouldn't spill over to the public arena. But yes, so I wrote to them and said, you know, at, we had a bit of a Q&A around this practice. They, it's not a new thing. They introduced it when the National Credit Act allowed them to back in, I think it was 2008 when the act became effective. Um, and these costs are charged to cover the cost of collecting on ARIA TFG money accounts. I asked what percentage of the TFG book currently misses their payment date or short pays. Um, and the answer is 8%. So it's a mess. TFG's latest annual report reveals that as of March this year, they had almost 2.8 million active account holders. So they're adding payment reminder fees to about 224,000 accounts every month. That's quite a lot. Um, I asked how soon after the pay-by date has passed are these forms of contact made to say, hey, pay up in the various platforms? Um, and are they triggered all at the same time? So it seems that, um, yes, it's that first reminder prior to the date being reached. The first contact with the customer after they've, they've missed their payment is always an SMS, that's a 2 rand 80, notifying them that they're in arrears and request them to make payment. And that uh, one day, that's literally the day after their payment's due on the first of the month. On the second of the month, if you haven't paid, you get that SMS. And then it depends on after that on your profile. Low-risk customers do usually pay on time, but they've just had a bit of a, a thing that month. They get an email, an SMS and an email a, a week later. High-risk ones, they're getting um, uh, the whole lot. Email, uh, 13 days later, they're getting um, all sorts of things. Anyway, it, it, it escalates. For the most, the worst-case scenario, non-responsive customers, they get a maximum of two SMSs, one letter, two calls, and one email in a given month while the arrears persist. And, I mean, that's 20 rand per call or letter or yeah. email. So it, it's going to add up to quite a lot. And you can see why people who, who are late get a bit across. 
But as you say, you signed this contract and you agreed to, to pay the full minimum, minimum amount by the, by the date. And if you don't, this is what's happened. Are they alone in doing it? Uh, no, I had, a, I had a little Google of various terms and conditions. Woolies does it too. They don't specify the amount, but they say if you miss one or more payments, we'll let you know and we'll charge you a fee every time we write to you for this reason. It's called a default administration fee. Truist doesn't seem to do it, but it's definitely something to check if you have an account. And my advice would be, you know, accounts, it's, it's these are low-hanging fruit. It's a, probably the first form of credit you're going to be offered. The interest rates are very high. Um, so work on closing those accounts. Um, and you're better off using one or maybe two credit cards to spread your credit. It hits you in the face, the amount you owe every month. You can't go into denial because the amounts you owe are now spread over three or four store cards, right? And I found the psychology of it is that when you have one of these cards, you feel like, you know, it's a financial transaction, but somehow you feel like you're part of a special club, like you're a special member. And when you're in need of some retail therapy, you tend to go to those places. And I found when I closed my account, I didn't have that that kind of compulsion anymore. I was just, I didn't have any allegiance. <laughs> I didn't have any connection. I promise that's you amazing. the thing if you talk yeah. to people. Yeah. So your spend doesn't go there. I mean, that's why they, they push their accounts, right? Um, so, so I would say that would be a good New Year's resolution. Sorry, sorry, retailers, but for the consumer benefit, you're not paying the high interest rates. You're not paying these fees for them to <laughs> call you and say you're overdue. You're paying the interest only. We always pay interest. But these are fees on top of compounded interest. So it does make store accounts very, very expensive. Yeah, look, I mean, I get the, I, I get, uh, I think it was uh, Temba's pain in this, but at the same time, you do have a responsibility to settle your accounts at the due date and the amount. I also understand that many, many people are not fortunate enough to have work. You sign up to a clothing account six months ago when you've got a job and suddenly you lose exactly. the job and times are tough. This is an environment where retailers can be perhaps a little bit more flexible, but they also don't want to be seen, I suppose, to be uh, tolerant of default i mean you know it's a contract a contract and uh, i wonder what that will do to customer loyalty over a long period of time but now in tough economic times they're exercising their rights and you need to know what their rights are so when they do level these things at you you don't make a twit of yourself picking a fight with somebody who knows the rules better than you yes and also i think i should say in fairness the tfg pointed out that the the costs that they levy are um less than the costs permitted by the debt collectors Act. Oh. So they're not charging the maximum, and they'd say it's only you know they're fairly limited for those who just you know f- you know don't pay because they had a bad month or they forget or whatever. But that the heaviest fees are for those who are are just not responding and and are regularly not paying on time or in full. And so, unfortunately, those without the means to pay are getting hit with the biggest amounts of of we will contact you to tell you that you need to pay fees um yeah so i guess just knowledge is power make your choices um in terms of your credit that you that you have and and um what form of credit you're going to have so look at fees look at interest and look at yeah basically those two two things the interest and the fees you get let's have a little taste of a little bit of charlie munger wisdom you'll hear the voice of warren buffett you'll hear the voice of charlie munger we will get back to david shapiro in a moment but here's a taste of the 
absolute brilliance of a pair of part-time comedians and full-time investment professionals. For those of you who are about to enter business school or who are there, I recommend you learn to do it our way, but at least until you're out of school, you have to pretend to do it their way. People don't seem to get that point. Do you have any idea why, Charlie? <laughs> Warren, if people weren't so often wrong, we wouldn't be so rich. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think you would understand any presentation using the word EBITDA. If every time you saw that word, you just substituted the phrase bullshit earnings. <laughs> yeah, it's not that much fun to uh, buy a business where you really hope this sucker liquidates before it goes broke. <laughs> I like cryptocurrencies a lot less than you do. <laughs> to me, it's just dementia. Professional traders that go into trading cryptocurrencies, it's just disgusting. It's like somebody else is trading turds and you decide I can't be left out. I don't think there are good arguments against my position. I think the people that oppose my position are idiots. <laughs> and, and so, no, I'm... A, I'm optimistic about life. If I can be optimistic when I'm nearly dead, surely the rest of you can handle a little inflation. <laughs> uh, they're astonishing. I mean, I'm optimistic when I'm nearly dead. Surely the rest of you can handle a little inflation. I know I'm right. The rest of you, you are all idiots. Let's go to Pete Fulion until we get to David Shapiro. Uh, Pete, I mean, you also went to Omaha many times. I saw a photograph yes. of you today with people like Dion Chos and Laurie Dippenard was in the photograph. You were one of the... Acolytes, one of the disciples, one of the Kool-Aid drinkers. Um, yeah, those are those are interesting descriptors. Um, <laughs> I, I do think that um, that Charlie Munger was a uh, very very wise person, not only with respect to investing, but to how to deal with the vicissitudes of life. Um, and that is what investing is all about, uh, is how to deal with the curveballs that life throws at you uh, in running a business, in managing a business, in managing a portfolio. And, and I think um, Charlie Munger was a very clear thinker uh, about the sort of attitude one had to have, um, about the aptitudes one had to have, and uh, about how you need to go about your daily tasks. Um, and to learn from him, to be able to read his stuff and to learn from him was a massive privilege. Um, and to the extent that one is exposed to that and can learn from that, uh, it, it, it really is very special. You, I mean, you do personally have very strong investment views. You know what works and what doesn't work. I'm sure you, like Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett, occasionally will make a mistake and occasionally you will have a huge breakthrough that outperforms even your wildest expectations. But have you ever met anybody more dogmatic or, or sat and observed anybody more dogmatic than Charlie Munger, who seemed so absolutely certain about his principles and process that he could make these very strong statements and sometimes quite outlandish statements about his own prowess? Well, um, I think he had uh, 55 years of outstanding investment performance uh, to back up his confidence in himself and his processes. Uh, and I'm sure that over time that gave him the confidence to say what he said uh, and to to continue to apply his philosophy, investment philosophies, um, uh, as, as they applied to Berkshire Hathaway, Wesco, Daily Journal, all the business he was involved with. I mean, he was probably one of the most successful investors ever in the world. 
so to the extent that gave him a certain amount of self-confidence, it's probably understandable. Warren Buffett is better known. Warren Buffett is quoted more widely and more freely. He's more of the public face of Berkshire Hathaway than Charlie Munger ever was. Charlie Munger, perhaps in the background more than Warren Buffett. Why did he, why was he happy to take that sort of second fiddle role when, I mean, geez, the chirps and the comments and the absolute uh, directness was very useful at those, at those yeah. Berkshire Hathaway meetings. So, so I think in public, he was very happy to play second fiddle, um, to play the straight man to Warren Buffett's uh, crowd-pleasing personality. Um, but I think what I've read, now I can't vouch for this, I, I, you know, I don't know them personally, I don't know if it's true or not, but what I've read about them is that in private, he was a dominant force and he was the guiding light in terms of how they went about doing things and uh, making decisions and so on. But uh, that's just what I've read about them. I don't no, no, I mean, that's certainly my, my understanding of it as well and everything that I've read, that Charlie Munger sort of would, would pull the strings. The fact that, I mean, Charlie Munger was nearly 100 years old. Warren Buffett is not far behind. I mean, the vast majority of people work as little as they possibly can to get to a point where they've probably made enough money to last them there for the rest of their lives. And then they bail on the nine to five. These guys worked the five to nine and, 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 and did it with joy. What was Buffett's, um, the Carol Loomis book was called tap dancing on your way to work or something. I mean, that's yes, a, a fundamentally no, no. healthy attitude towards work. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I think they found an investment process that they enjoyed thoroughly, um, that enhanced their life and didn't take away from their life. And it's something, if you fi- can find that, it's something you can do and you can apply for the rest of your life. And they were lucky enough to have very, very long lives. Um, and, you know, compounding is a fantastic thing. The longer you can compound, the bigger the numbers become. And they were able to compound for a very, very long time. Uh, so they were very fortunate. But I think the crux of the matter is that they found something they enjoyed doing, that they were good at, and that they could do basically forever or until they died. Uh, I think if, if, if you're doing things... If you're working for other people and you're not enjoying it and it's terrible, then yes, I can understand mm. that you retire as soon as you can. But if you are rowing your own boat in the way that you like rowing it, then <laughs> you'll do better. Did they invent anything new? Did they come up with original ideas? Um, or did they simply just follow the principles of Benjamin Graham, who wrote his treaties, if you like, in the 1920s? And they kind of, that was value investing. They understood it. And they just did that over and over and over again. Yeah, so, so with investing, there's nothing new, really. There, it's not like science where you, uh, where you um, come up uh, with test theories and come up with new, uh, uh, new ideas and, and, and new theorems and so on. Uh, investing is the same. And we've lost him. Yay, that's happened again. It's happened quite a lot today. How oh, very distressing. But uh, thank you very much. Pete Fulune. Uh Pete Fulune is uh, a regular c- uh, contributor uh, to The Money Show. He's an investment professional. He's been around the block. We'll hear from David Shapiro. I believe we're getting hold of him in just a moment. The Money Show. Shapeshifters. Back to David Shapiro. Our shapeshifter this evening is the late Charlie Munger. Charlie Munger, business partner to Warren Buffett. And uh, Charlie died overnight at the age of 99. And you heard earlier in a clip, and if there's time, we'll play you a little bit more of it, just the homespun wisdom of 
Charlie Munger. We, we just had such a terrible signal to you earlier, David Shapiro. You went there eight times. You sat through these marathon sessions of these two old guys yakking about investments and markets and philosophy and their view of the world. What was it about what they said, the way they said it, that kept you going back time after time? And when you stopped going back, then sitting through the hours of wisdom online as well. You know, one chap that we bumped into uh, had a comment and he said, it's like going to church or it's going to shul or wherever. <laughs> you know what the message is going to be, but you keep going back for more. And I just think it was their wonderful approach to investments. And Bruce, you know what? It's very simple. It is not difficult to find good companies and to stay with these companies. The problem is we make it difficult. We let emotion get in our way. And, and I think even though Warren and Berkshire uh, might not have be performing or uh, doing as well as the S&P over the last few years, nevertheless, if you still follow their philosophies, you're not going to go wrong, you know, if you don't get sidetracked. And I think that was just the wonderful part of just being there, is listening to this incredible wisdom. I have notes, you know, I, I have so many presentations of the of uh, notes that I took there. And when I go through them, every time I go through them, it's like a refresher course. So, um, yeah, you know, I, we're going to miss them. I mean, it's inevitable. Um, Warren is 93, but I don't think we're going to get anybody uh, like them again. It's it's not going to be easy. Those kind of characters um, are not are not around. The biggest lesson and the most important mm. lesson and the lesson that I think is the hardest to comprehend is the fact that by the time he was about 50 or 52, Warren Buffett and probably Charlie Munger weren't particularly wealthy. I mean, they were incredibly comfortable. Had they stopped working at the age of 50 or 52, they would never have spent all the money that they've got because they're both very parsimonious individuals and weren't living flashy lifestyles. But the compounding effect of all of the money that they had yeah. invested up until that point suddenly took off like a steam train and, you know, yeah. made them amongst the wealthiest people in the world in the next 30 and 35 years. Yeah. But Bruce, they still live frugal uh, lifestyles. You know, if you go to Omaha today, uh, Warren lives in the same house that he did. He just drives. Uh, a very ordinary car. I don't think he replaces it that too often. Uh, he loves hamburgers. He loves junk food. He lives on it. And, you know, he always comments that, uh, about broccoli and Brussels sprouts, you know, <laughs> that, uh, and, 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 and that's his philosophy. Yeah. He's very down to earth. And I think that's what makes them, uh, so appealing that there's no arrogance about them and their investment philosophy. It's just uh, it, it's so simple. I think what people might not understand about Charlie is that he actually changed Warren's views, you know, from being very much a Benjamin Graham man trying to find cheap assets or cheap uh, value plays, you know, to looking for rather uh, to looking for high quality businesses with what they call the moat. And, you know, Charlie is the man who, who even though he was very conservative and, and, and Warren used to call him Old Testament, uh, in his in his approach, even though he seemed conservative, he was the man. He loved China, and he believed that you know he liked the Chinese because it was so difficult to compete with him. But he was the one who introduced uh, Warren to uh, BYD, Build Your Dream, which today is the electric um, uh, car manufacturer in 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 China. I know they sold out of it, made made an absolute fortune. So 
in essence, he was a lot more forward-thinking, I think, than uh, than Warren. So I think we underrate, you know, what he did do and what his, uh, you know, what his views on investment were. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, again, as you say, the investing landscape is going to change forever. They won't do another Omaha gathering. I can't imagine unless Warren Buffett decides to introduce somebody new. I saw a face today of somebody that said this is the heir apparent to Warren Buffett. There's got to be a big team in the background. They couldn't all be doing it themselves and doing it to the extent that they've been doing it for the last 60 years. Uh, Do we have a clear path of succession? Because I think it's been a bit hit and miss for many years, hasn't it? No, they've, they've, they've identified you know, um, uh, who's going to take over. I think uh, it's Greg Abel will be, you know, will run the businesses. I think uh, Ajit, what's his name? Ajit, uh, I never get the, his name correctly, so I'm going to mess it up. But who will run the um, the financial side, which is the insurance companies. Um, so, but they're not going to have the same personality. You know, when they get up there, they're very nice, decent people. But I don't think they've got the character, the humor that these two chaps uh, used to carry. And, you know, they also, they were forthright. I mean, Charlie hated stockbrokers. He hated accountants. You know, he always he used hated to say cryptocurrency, they, hated so many he, things. Even worse. <laughs> and he hated business schools, and he was, you know, always used to express that they teach the people the wrong way to invest, you know, and derivatives, all of those things. And there are not many people who are going to have that kind of courage to get in front of an audience and address those uh, issues. You know how sensitive we are, and I think that was so so wonderful about him. They were just forthright um, in their, you know, in their views. Um, yeah, so it, it is was called the Woodstock. For capitalists, I think I heard another person refer to it as saying, you know, the grateful, it was actually more a grateful <laughs> dead concert for the rich. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know if there are many people who know the grateful dead, but I mean, yeah. uh, it, it just was a wonderful place to be and uh, just wonderful to be in their company. And as I said, you knew the message, you just wanted to be there though. It's certainly the end of an era, and I, I just yeah, yeah. I remember Jack Bogle. The yeah, I was there. Jack Bogle was in the mm-hmm. audience, and Jack Bogle, the father of index investing, of course, was asked to stand up by Warren Buffett. And Warren Buffett makes the joke: "Oh, Jack, you're going to be ninety next year. You're almost old enough to join our management committee." Ha ha ha! <laughs> and poor, poor Jack Bogle was you know, he, he was really struggling. He managed to drag himself up on his Zimmer frame, and he raised his hand to the audience, and he died fairly soon after that, I think. But I mean. It's just, uh, again, the huge respect that these guys had for each other and the, the willingness yeah. to, to point out things that weren't obvious to the rest of us. And, and, mm. and Warren Buffett, and I'm sure Charlie Munger, in agreement there, index investing for most of his wife's inheritance. And any inheritance he passes yeah. out, index investing is the way. Don't mess around with shares. You need special skills for that sort of stuff. And um, clearly, um, you know, thinking that this is the future. And he, that's why he was lauding Jack Bogle at that time. They're right. And there's one thing that you brought up. Age never got in the way. And he used to tell the story of um, of, of the lady who used to run, uh, uh, God, her name's just uh, from uh, Furniture Mart. She died yeah. at 103. Yes. yes and yes. Uh, Rose Blumkin, Rose Blumkin. Yes. And uh, she worked until she was 103, sorry, 103 and retired and then died. And he says, you see what you do, <laughs> what happens when you give up working. And uh, it was a wonderful story, the Rose Blumkin story. And, and, and that's why for him, age was never an issue.
And I think it's so important, uh, you know, for business people to understand the wisdom that even people at their age, you know, can still bring to the community. Thank you, David Shapiro. Wonderful tribute. And Pete Fulyun before him and also Fukuki Kweman for stepping in and giving us a contribution this evening on The Money Show. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield was brought to you by APSA Corporate and Investment Banking, bringing you award-winning trade and working capital funding solutions to unlock the full potential of your business story. APSA is a registered FSP.